Welcome to the podcast of Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly magazine about medicine and health. I'm your host, Barbara Lewis. This free podcast is made possible by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, Indiana's premier urban health and life sciences campus, IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. I'm Barbara Lewis, this week on Sound Medicine. How much uncertainty do you have to have before you protect your kids? A special investigation into plastics and the chemicals that can leach out of them. We'll look at where the science is right now. I would say that plastics would be a major source of exposure of chemicals, including endocrine disruptors. Why it's so hard to do rigorous testing. If it turns out that you're overestimating how much should be allowed in the environment, you might actually kill people. And simple steps you can take to protect your family. The hotter the material is, the greater the leaching of any chemical will be. Also, we'll look at whether insurance companies should access your genetic information. And these are issues that we need to begin to think about now before it's too late. And a new doctor who's written the book on the healthcare system. It's all coming up next on Sound Medicine. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome to Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly news magazine about medicine and health. I'm Barbara Lewis. We begin this week with a question. Why would an endocrinologist think twice about putting plastics in the microwave? It sounds like a lame riddle, but it's actually a very complicated question. So for a large portion of this edition of Sound Medicine, with the help of independent producer Shia Levitt, we're going to dig into what is in some plastics that has some scientists concerned and what you as a consumer can do to learn more and protect yourself. We are talking about the intersection of plastics and hormones. What do hormones do? I think it's better to say, what don't they do in our bodies? Because they really do help regulate and control communication between all of the organs of our body. That's developmental biologist Laura Vandenberg. We'll hear more from her in just a while. But let's start with the basics. A plastic bottle, say a baby bottle or a sports drink, can contain from two to 200 different chemicals, from softeners or hardeners to dyes or paints, additives that help plastic maintain a shape or make it more durable or rubbery or elastic. But various chemicals found in plastics, chemicals called endocrine disruptors, have come under scrutiny recently for their ability to act like hormones, which can contribute to a whole host of diseases and other health problems. The plastics getting the most attention are ones that come in contact with food and drinks, as well as children's toys that might wind up in a baby's mouth. While drugs must be tested and shown as safe before they go to market, U.S. law assumes most consumer products, like baby toys, are safe unless proven otherwise. Manufacturers don't have to disclose their ingredients to consumers. Food contact items are an exception. The FDA has to be reasonably sure that the chemicals in them won't cause harm. But here is where it gets even more complicated. The approach taken by regulators and industry to determine if a chemical is safe has been to see if chemicals act like poisons, and generally not whether they act like hormones. Once approved, it's difficult to get a chemical taken off the list, even when new research emerges. So we asked Shia Levitt to check in with scientists at the forefront of research on endocrine-disrupting chemicals and plastics to ask this question. How strong is the evidence that small amounts of chemicals leaching from plastics can affect your health? That's where she started. A main health concern from plastics centers on chemicals that can leach from food packaging into our diet or from toys directly into a baby's mouth. Several of these chemicals fall into a group called endocrine-disrupting chemicals, or EDCs. Endocrine-disrupting chemicals are compounds, or mixtures of compounds, that interfere in some way with how hormones work in our body. If you've heard the term before, it may be from two that have been in the news lately, bisphenol A, or BPA, a chemical used in hard and clear plastics, and phthalates, which can help make plastics softer. France banned BPA from all food contact items. In the U.S., although BPA and some phthalates have both been banned from certain baby products, 
the Food and Drug Administration maintains that current approved uses of BPA in food containers and packaging are safe. But a growing body of scientific evidence links higher levels of hormone-disrupting chemicals in the body with higher levels of a wide range of diseases and conditions. Infertility, birth defects, learning disorders, and cardiovascular disease are among many harmful impacts that global experts say can be attributed in part to EDC exposure. A series of recent studies estimated that these exposures likely cost Europe more than $200 billion annually in healthcare expenses and lost wages. It's easy for the public to get lost in this debate. Deborah Karash is a developmental biologist and an endocrinologist at the University of Calgary. There is also a fatigue with the public. Any given day, there's a piece of news that is one more thing they need to be careful about and they just stop listening because it seems like a controversial subject and until it's decided, maybe they don't need to weigh in on it. So we wanted to speak with some of the scientists studying plastics and the impacts of endocrine disruptors on health and ask, where does the current science stand? And what are their concerns about plastics? Turns out, Karash says, it isn't all that controversial among certain scientists. There's almost universal acceptance among endocrinologists that a lot of the chemicals we're exposed to, whether from plastics, pesticides, or cosmetics, can act as endocrine disruptors and cause our bodies harm. The evidence is so strong within the scientific literature that there are very low doses of these compounds affect a wide variety of diseases and developmental processes, and that there just really isn't much evidence otherwise. And we're able to reproduce each other's studies and collectively The burden of proof has been met for us in that with 95% confidence, we believe that this is real. But that's just a small part of what hormones do in our body. They really do help regulate and control communication between all of the organs of our body. Hormones affect our brain development, immune system, and cell growth. Also sperm levels, genital formation, and a host of other things. Our endocrine system, the one that regulates our body's hormones, helps us maintain our body weight and temperature. In a newly forming fetus, hormones help tell cells which organs or body parts to become. Our body's sensitivity to hormonal changes, especially at key times in our lives, like in the womb, is part of why there's growing attention to compounds that can mimic or disrupt how hormones work in the body. Andrea Gore is editor of the journal Endocrinology and author of the Endocrine Society's Scientific Statement on Endocrine-Disrupting Chemicals. There's still a debate going on. The vast majority, and I mean pretty close to 100% of basic scientists who are doing research in the field in their own labs, find effects of endocrine disruptors on their biological system. With funding from an NIH grant, a plastic testing company helped carry out the largest and most comprehensive study of its kind, testing more than 450 plastic food and drink containers from stores such as Target, Walmart, Trader Joe's, and Whole Foods. They found that more than 70% of them leached chemicals with estrogenic activity. The number rose to 90% when they tested across a variety of simulated food types. The study suggested that a great majority of commercially available plastics can leach detectable amounts of chemicals with estrogenic activity. In other words, chemicals that could possibly interfere with our hormones. Full disclosure, the companies that ran the study make their money from testing plastics and other products for estrogenic activity and helping manufacturers come up with products that don't leach estrogenic chemicals. Still, other studies have supported the finding that heat, including from sunlight, microwaving, or dishwasher heat, increases the leaching of chemicals from plastics, including endocrine-disrupting ones. This is the case even for several BPA-free products. Developmental biologist Laura Vandenberg says both hard and soft plastics are a major source of exposure to chemicals, including hormone-disrupting ones. She wrote one of the largest recent analyses of the existing data on human health impacts from low-dose exposures to EDCs. Because they can either mimic the actions of hormones or block the actions of hormones, they can shift the developmental trajectory of cells in our bodies. They can change the development of organs during fetal life in ways that we don't necessarily know what the consequence would be. The effects of endocrine disruptors have been hard to study, in part because they can impact things as diverse as brain development, behavior, and reproduction. They also work in subtle or sometimes unexpected ways. 
Some animal studies on BPA, for instance, have found impacts transmitted to offspring three generations down the line. Biology professor Thomas Zeller serves on the United Nations Environmental Program's advisory group on endocrine-disrupting chemicals. If we think about what do we think of as toxic, we think of something that makes you sick immediately or kills you. That's not what these endocrine disruptors are doing. Another reason it's been difficult to study, identify, and regulate these hormone disruptors, there's disagreement over how to test and measure their effects. Traditional toxicology tests used higher doses of a potential poison to predict what a safe lower dose would be. They didn't test to see if predicted safe levels were actually safe, both in adults and in developing fetuses. A consensus of endocrinologists say this method is flawed and outdated. Here's leading developmental endocrinologist Fred Vomsal. The Endocrine Society of doctors and scientists who work with the endocrine system and hormones are telling the regulatory community your conclusions of safety of chemicals are based on flawed approaches. Vamsal was among the first to test impacts from hormone-disrupting chemicals at the same low levels at which hormones themselves can impact our body. Now, many endocrinologists and more toxicologists are starting to use a similar approach. Vamsal says regulatory agencies need to test at these extremely low levels and make sure they're safe for babies developing in the womb. Unless they do, he says, They are never going to be able to determine whether chemicals in the environment that act as endocrine-disrupting chemicals are or are not safe, and that the current approaches are clearly leading to false conclusions of safety. Unlike with cigarette smoking, where there's a group of non-smokers, there's no control group of non-exposed people for this research. Most of us already have endocrine-disrupting chemicals inside our bodies. Tom Zeller says when pregnant women are exposed, the chemicals can reach developing babies, too, through the umbilical cord. Every baby born in this country probably has somewhere around 100 individual manufactured chemicals in their cord blood. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that 93% of thousands of kids and adults they tested had detectable BPA in their urine. This was at concentrations that had induced effects in some animal studies. The CDC has also found many other chemicals with known endocrine-disrupting activity in our bodies at a similar scale. Again, Deborah Karash. And I think it's just a matter of time before we talk about endocrine-disruptors causing harm, just like we talk about smoking causing harm. There's no one particular compound or exposure that's the culprit here. It's the combined exposures to numerous chemicals throughout our lives. But changing the way we use plastics is something we can control. And experts say one way we can cut down our potential exposures. More about that in part two. Later on Sound Medicine, Shia will be back with some tips from experts on how to reduce your exposure to potentially harmful endocrine-disrupting chemicals. But first, as you heard, it's been hard for science to get a grip on how dangerous some of those chemicals in plastic really are. One challenge is designing a scientific study that meets ethical guidelines. And that's what we talked about with Sound Medicine's bioethicist, Dr. Eric Meslin. In the regular kind of medical research that we all know about, uh, the clinical trial where you're testing one drug against another drug or a drug against a placebo, the idea is you expect that the drug you're testing is going to help somebody or at least not hurt somebody. But when you're looking at environmental toxins and figuring out what's the safe level of PCB or arsenic or some other chemical, it's really hard for obvious reasons to design a study where you intentionally expose people to the very thing that you know is harmful and you just want to figure out how harmful. I mean, the EPA is very concerned about how much lead there should be in the water. 
We can't force feed people lead until they die and say, well, that's too much. And we can't really expose people in a randomized trial. Some get lead, some don't. We already know that lead is a poison. So the, the EPA and others have been struggling with this for some time. One is, do we use very old data, which exists. We did some of those studies in the early 1960s, and then sort of guess at what the right level is. You might be too high, you might be too low. None of those tests were done on pediatric patients or women, so we have no idea what the correct dose is. Or do we design other kinds of studies? So there's, in a sense, a new movement afoot to figure out different research designs. You could simply look back at old cases and look back at different communities and find out what the level of these uh, toxins were in the water, in the soil, and then make sort of algorithmic projections. You could use animals, which has its own set of ethical issues, testing animals, finding out which ones will get very sick or die, and then trying to figure out an analogy to humans. Uh, you can design computer models, which is becoming very popular. Or you can do a number of the more sophisticated things and do in vitro uh, studies with various tissues and, and other uh, biological materials. None of these are absolutely foolproof. And they raise, the I say, the usual ethical issues of consent and risk and public health concern. But if you're using something under the microscope, you know, Petri dishes, I mean... Haven't we become sophisticated enough to to do to guess these things? Well, you know, I mean, is it so yes important? No. To yeah, of course, Barb, you're, you're you're spot on. But some of this boils down to accuracy, parts per million or parts per billion. Where if it turns out that you're overestimating how much should be allowed in the environment, you might actually kill people by just a little bit. So even though mathematical models and algorithms and the like um, can give us good approximations, there's no substitution, as we know in medical research generally with drugs and even with technologies, there's no substitution for actually testing them with human beings. So it's one of those ethical conundrums in public health and environmental health in particular that has caused people to sort of rethink, retrench, and try and go back to square one. Interestingly, there are some new papers that have come out on just this issue, which are showing that we don't have the best method figured out yet. We do know that the gold standard for finding out the answers to questions is a randomized clinical trial, but the gold standard might actually be harmful if it turns out that we're exposing one more person than is absolutely necessary to a harm that could be avoided. I know. I think I'm absolutely mystified by this because I, on one hand, I've said if you're talking about toxins, well, less is always better. Uh, and if you're talking about uh, doing a, a study, like you said, on, on humans, especially on, on, on children, I mean, how would you ever come up with something that would be ethical and, and safe? Some of it, to be quite fair, is not so obvious and cut and dried. Give somebody this absolutely deadly poison and they die versus don't. Everyone would say, don't give them the poison. But like many things, some of these toxins come in various um, strengths and, and weaknesses. And we all make judgments about what kind of risk we're prepared to live with. It turns out that if you really wanted to be absolutely safe and prevent all deaths from toxins, you'd have to get rid of the entire rubber industry, the entire oil industry, all plastics of any kind, um, and then where would we be left? We do live in a society that seems to love and is maybe obsessed with rubber, oil, uh, and plastics. Just look at the, the states that have resisted recycling or resisted uh, plastic uh, bag banning. So some of this is not so much about the obviousness of testing a toxin in a person as much as they are, what are we going to do with the information when we find out that a level that we really don't like is actually the level that society wants in the form of products. Dr. Eric Meslin, thank you. My pleasure. Dr. Eric Meslin is the director of the IU Center for Bioethics. I'm Eric Metcalf, and your Sound Medicine Stat is 5,100. 
When you refer to a group of 10 women as they in Spanish, you use the feminine form, which is ellas. But if just one guy joins, then that group takes on the masculine form, ellos. Similarly, if just a few guys join a female-dominated profession, will they take the lead, income-wise? In the case of nurses, see. A new JAMA study examined the salaries of nearly 300,000 RNs over recent decades. Just 7 to 10 percent of the nurses were men. But the men brought home, on average, about 5,100 more dollars 5,100? per year. Experts suggest different explanations, which might cause varying levels of outrage in that female nurse handling the code brown in room 127. Maybe it's that more women with seniority have asked for day shifts that pay less. Or men are more assertive in haggling over their salary. I've had occasion at least once to sheepishly tell a nurse, I hope you're getting paid enough to do this. Odds are, she wasn't. That was the number 5100, and I'm Eric Metcalf. Coming up. How much of your genetic information should your life insurance company have about you? And it may be in the future that when you go to see your doctor, he or she will have your complete genome. All that information will be on his or her computer. And he or she can look at it and say, uh, do you want to know if you have a gene associated with Alzheimer's? I can press this button. You're listening to Sound Medicine. Underwriting for Sound Medicine's health news headlines comes from Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. More information at marion.edu slash medical school. I'm Jill Dittmeyer with this week's health news headlines. Plenty of studies to share this week. The first about iron supplements for pregnant women and infants. Researchers found that adding them during pregnancy doesn't seem to help or hurt the health outcome of mother and baby, and giving infants and toddlers the supplement doesn't really hurt or hinder growth and development either. Acetaminophen, best known as Tylenol in the U.S., was the subject of a study in Australia, where researchers at the University of Sydney reviewed a dozen studies on how much pain it relieves in those who suffer from osteoarthritis. Not much, especially for those with pain in the hip, knee, and lower back. The study found that the only way it made a dramatic difference in relieving pain was to take it at doses that are far greater than what is recommended as safe. Parents who think it's okay to give their young kids a sip of wine at the dinner table might want to take note. Researchers from Brown University found that kids who were allowed to taste an alcoholic beverage before they started middle school were five times more likely to have a whole drink by the time they were in the ninth grade. That's compared with classmates who stuck with, say, 7-Up. And young sippers were also four times as likely to binge drink or get drunk by the start of high school, according to the study. And scientists in England this week discovered the stink gene. Well, sort of. Researchers at the University of York identified a bacteria called Staphylococcus hominis, which lives under our arms. It's believed to cause that nasty odor that can resemble onions or rotten eggs. Well, this week, they cracked the bacteria's genetic code, learning how those bacteria create that stinky smell. They're hoping the findings will lead to products that attack the bacteria rather than covering them up, which is what deodorants and antiperspirants do. Reporting for Sound Medicine News, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You're listening to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. Our next guest recently posed a provocative question. Should life insurance companies have access to genetic test results? Dr. Robert Klitzman is a professor of psychiatry, and he's the director of the Masters of Bioethics program at Columbia University. In a recent essay in JAMA, he suggested that there needs to be a middle ground between absolutely and no way. Welcome to Sound Medicine. It's great to be here. In a recent issue of JAMA, you explore whether or not life insurance companies should have access to people's genetic information. And before we talk about that, let, let's go back a few steps. Uh, what kind of even playing field do these companies and their customers require so that companies stay in business and the public has a fair chance of getting affordable insurance? It's a great question. The idea of life insurance is basically to provide a social good, which is that, God forbid, I die early or someone dies early prematurely, uh, we don't want to impoverish their family uh, with various expenses. So the idea of life insurance is that people who want it buy into it. And uh, this way, if out of a thousand people, if a few people die early and their survivors would otherwise be impoverished, they could be helped by the pool that we're all putting money in. 
For that to happen, what we don't want is for some people who know they're going to die early to buy lots and lots of life insurance because they know that they're going to be the one person who's going to need it. And therefore, everyone else is basically going to be helping them out, and they know that in advance. So that's arguably unfair to everybody else. On the other hand, we believe that people should get genetic tests because they could be helpful for their health. And we don't want discrimination to occur. We don't want people who may be at risk of a genetic disease that may kill them early. We don't want those people to be discriminated against just because they have that gene. And so there's a tension. And the question is, how can we best level the playing field so that insurance companies aren't bankrupted by people who know they have a genetic disease, but people who are at risk of genetic diseases aren't discriminated against? Can you talk about the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act? What companies does this act apply to and what companies are exempt? Yes. So the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, or GINA, was passed a few years ago by the federal government. And it outlaws discrimination in health insurance based on genetic information. So if I know that I have a risk genes that may be more likely to give me Huntington's disease, which is a neurologic disease that Woody Guthrie, for instance, died of, or breast cancer, for instance, that a number of people unfortunately die from. If I have those genes, I don't want an insurance company to say, we're not going to give you insurance because of that. So the law prevents discrimination in health insurance, but it does not cover life insurance or disability insurance or long-term care insurance. So currently, a life insurance company or a disability insurance company can say, if you want us to give you insurance, life insurance or disability insurance, you have to get genetic testing done, and we want to see your genetic test results. And if there are genes that we don't like, we're not going to cover you or we're going to increase your rates. Now, that unfortunately could be discriminatory because they could say, we only want people who have really good genes, and any gene that might look bad, we're going to discriminate against you. So we don't want that. And the question is how to avoid that. But the problem is some people who know they're at risk of different genetic diseases, or sometimes they go out and get genetic testing done under a pseudonym, they then buy lots of life insurance. So we need, I think, life insurance and disability insurance and long-term care insurance are not yet covered by the law. And I think we need to think as a society how we want to deal with these issues. I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Klitzman. He's a professor of psychiatry and director of the Masters of Bioethics program at Columbia University. Are you seeing on the horizon that genetic testing will be done for just routinely and and this is why we have to act now or, or is that day already here? Great question. Yes, there's more and more genetic testing that's being done. And I would predict that in a few years at some point, maybe it's 5, 10, maybe it's 20 years, but probably in a few years, there'll be genetic testing done on many, many, if not most, if not almost all of us. And it may be in the future that when you go to see your doctor, he or she will have your complete genome, your entire DNA, all that information will be on his or her computer. And he or she can look at it and say, do you want to know if you have a gene associated with Alzheimer's? I can press this button. Do you want to see if you have a gene associated with breast cancer? I can press that button. Now, we're not there yet, but there's more and more testing being done. And the reason for that is because the price has come down. Ten years ago, if I wanted to see my whole genome, have it sequenced, the three billion letters of molecules that are my unique blueprint that make me versus you and give me my hair color and eye color and predisposition for certain diseases as opposed to your hair color and eye color and predisposition to other diseases, to sequence those 3 billion letters would have cost $100 million for one person. And in the past 10 years, the price has gone from $100 million to $10 million to $1 million to 100000 So it's now a few thousand dollars, three to four to $5,000. And in a few years, it'll be less expensive. So with that, more and more people are getting genetic testing done. And of course, there was the company 23andMe that was doing a form of genetic testing directly to consumers and the FDA put a stop to their making claims about the medical value. But there undoubtedly will also be direct-to-consumer marketing of genetic tests as well. So increasingly in the next few years, genetic tests are something that will affect many, if not almost all of our lives. And these are issues that we therefore need to begin to think about now before it's too late. And as I understand it, if you have a gene, like a BRCA1 or BRCA2, it means you have a greater chance of getting breast cancer, for example, but it doesn't mean a certainty. 
That's right. So with breast cancer, for instance, about 10% of all breast cancer is the genetic kind. And if you have the gene, the BRCA1 or BRCA2, or the two most well-known ones and most prevalent ones, there's about a 50% chance that you'll get breast cancer if you have one of those two genes. But that means that you could have the gene and not get it, it's 50-50, or you could not have the gene and still get breast cancer. So it's complicated. Other diseases, there are a few diseases such as Huntington's disease, where if you have the gene, the mutation, you will die of it if you don't die of something else first. That's rare, but there are a few rare diseases like that. But you're right, for most diseases, and certainly for most cases of most common diseases, genes contribute some, but there's other environmental things that contribute to our health, of course, what we eat, how much we exercise, pollution, other things, who knows what. And another question, in addition to the reliability of genetic testing as of today, is that life insurance companies already have a great deal of information about people's health risks. Wouldn't they be looking at what your parents and your grandparents died of already and getting a lot of useful information that way? Do they really need the genetic test? Yes. Again, a great question. The issue is that we don't know what insurance companies will do with it. So an insurance company could, on the one hand, say, I really just want to maximize as much money as I can get. So anyone who has anything close to a bad gene, I'm just going to exclude them. And they could legally do that. And I think that would be unfair. So we don't want that to occur. We don't want unfair discrimination. And the question is, where do you draw the line? What's not fair? They do have a lot of information. We want to make sure that they don't get more information than they need just to maximize profit at the expense of people's lives. So we don't want them to take advantage of the situation. But I would say we don't want patients who know they have bad genes to take advantage of the situation either. So we need to figure out a way. And I think we need to have a conversation. And I think that having this kind of a conversation now and getting people to begin to think about these issues is very important so that we could decide how to proceed. Do we want to have federal laws that prevent discrimination? Do we want to allow insurance companies to do whatever they want to do? Should we have them required to justify what they're doing in some way, which I think is important to do, et cetera. I think we can't just ignore it. We need to address what we want to do here. And we all have people in our family who will be dealing with these issues. And the more educated we all are, the better we can deal with them. Well, Dr. Robert Klitzman, thank you so much for talking with me. And best wishes to you for your continued research success. This is fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. Dr. Robert Klitzman directs the Masters of Bioethics program at Columbia University, and he is the author of Am I My Genes? Confronting Fate and Family Secrets in the Age of Genetic Testing. It's time now for this week's Sound Medicine Checkup. It turns out that how you choose your breakfast cereal in the grocery aisle may have a lot more to do with your eyes than your taste buds. Jill Dittmeyer explains. Gee, getting somebody to have breakfast with is sticky business. Cheer up, my porcupine pal. A fruitful breakfast will share right now. Follow your nose. It always knows. Ouch! I smell it. Kellogg's Fruit Loop cereal. The nose knows, but the key to successful cereal sales may be in the eyes. It's, it's a tremendous power of, of having those peoples meet your peoples. Professor Brian Wansick and his consumer research team at Cornell University watched shoppers to see what made them select a box of cereal from the shelf. Both adults and kids ignored those with the picture of the healthy product on the front. You know, I don't buy them even. It's just, you look at the box and you go, oh, that's gross. It looks like straw in a bowl. Instead, they selected boxes with pictures of people or cartoon characters on them. Look, we have this this weird, two-dimensional, neon-colored, freakish cartoon character. How is that going to make a difference at all? The difference comes from the look, literally. What's important here is eye contact. It's not like whether they're looking up or down. It's whether that up or down ends up making eye contact. So for kids, that meant characters whose eyes were cast slightly downward. After all, kids are short and their reach is limited. When we look at children's indulgence for breakfast cereals, we find that you know, typically they're about 23 inches off the ground uh, compared to 48 inches for most adult cereals. So, I mean, those cereals are knee-high to us, but eye-high to them. Eye contact matters for adults, too. 
Wansick had 30 college students look at two different images of the Trix cereal rabbit, one with that kid-intended downward gaze and another looking straight on. We found that when the Trix rabbit looked right at them rather looking than looking sort of away, college students found, it more, found a greater connection with the cereal, trusted it more, and were more likely to choose it over fruity pebbles. Wansick says his findings of placement and gaze prove that tricks are for kids, at least until they get the box home. In the cereal aisle, it's looking at them. On the breakfast table, I mean, it's, it's looking down. It's looking down at the uh, table. It's not staring. So you at might them at have all. to prop the cereal box up. In f- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You can listen to Sound Medicine anytime by signing up for our free weekly podcast. It's at our website, soundmedicine.org. Plus, we're at Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Swell AM, and iTunes. Just search for Sound Medicine Radio Hour. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome back to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. We continue now with our investigation into endocrine-disrupting chemicals and plastics. We can be exposed to these hormone-disrupting chemicals from a lot of places, pesticides, flame retardants, and personal care products, and from our food and food packaging. The primary route of exposure to these chemicals is oral, often from pesticides and environmental contaminants in our food supply, or chemicals that leach out of food packaging. In part two of her report, Shia Levitt asked the scientists who are studying endocrine disruptors how we can reduce our exposure in our own homes. Plastics are integrated into our lives in countless ways, and we often don't know the ingredients in them. But in stores across the country, we see on some product labels a growing list of ingredients that are not in them, In baby aisles especially, we see BPA-free baby bottles, phthalate and lead-free bath toys, and products free of polyvinyl chloride, or PVC. Researchers have linked each of these ingredients to potential harmful health impacts. And as consumers shell out money to replace their bottles and sippy cups with BPA-free ones, now some studies suggest that some of the replacement ingredients can have many of the same potential concerns. This can be frustrating for parents and consumers. It would be expensive and unrealistic to completely stop using plastic or to buy all new replacement products. We wanted to ask scientists and other experts we spoke to for this story for some simple steps people can take if they want to reduce their exposures to endocrine-disrupting chemicals. We got several concrete suggestions. At Mount Sinai's Children's Environmental Health Center, neuroscientist Sarah Evans worked with doctors to find simple steps that parents can take to minimize exposure to potentially harmful chemicals. The first message that we give is to avoid plastics with the recycling symbols number three, six, and seven. So if you must choose a plastic product, we recommend that you try to avoid those in order to reduce exposure in particular to bisphenol A and to phthalates. Number six is polystyrene, what we think of as styrofoam. Number seven can be polycarbonate, which often has BPA or similar substitutes. And number three is polyvinyl chloride, or PVC, which can contain phthalates and lead. PVC has the added problem that a known carcinogen is produced both during its manufacture and again if it's ever burned with trash. Evan says her team's second message is that parents should reduce the use of plastics when they can. So if you can substitute with glass, or stainless steel, or a wooden toy, we would recommend that rather than using plastic because plastics are made up of a number of different chemicals, sometimes hundreds of different chemicals, which may actually come out of the product that they're in and can get onto a child's hands, into a child's mouth, or into food and beverages. A lot of this information is missing from obstetrics and pediatrician offices, and Evan says young children are among the most vulnerable. Because they put more things in their mouth, they're closer to the ground where a lot of chemicals settle. Many food containers for children are made of plastic. We know that the most vulnerable period for harm from exposure to endocrine-disrupting chemicals may actually be in the womb during pregnancy. 
So we advise pregnant women in particular to avoid canned foods, which have the bisphenol A in the lining of the cans, microwaving food in plastic or heating plastic containers. Which gets to the next point. In addition to being more selective with the materials we use, we can reduce our exposures by changing the way we use plastics. For instance, several scientists said avoid heating your plastics, whether by microwave, dishwasher, or sunlight. The hotter the material is, the greater the leaching of any chemical will be. It's a function of heat. Bumsal says transfer food to a heat-resistant container before heating. There is no plastic on the market that should be put in heat in the oven or in a microwave. There are unknown numbers of chemicals in there. We don't know what they are. They haven't been tested. And we should not assume that they're safe because you're told they're safe in the absence of information. This includes items that say microwave or dishwasher safe. Again, Andrea Gore, editor of Endocrinology. I don't know what a company means when it says something is microwave or dishwasher safe. I think what they mean is the plastic container itself will not get damaged in the microwave or in the dishwasher. And no heating cling wrap, she says. Also, at home or out, be careful where you store your water bottles. Direct sunlight has a big impact on chemicals leaching from plastic, says Mike Yusey. His company was funded by NIH to do the largest and most comprehensive testing to date on estrogenic chemicals leaching from plastics. The sunlight really just destroys lots of plastics. It really tears them up. And when that happens, they start to leach more and more chemicals, more than microwaving or anything. If you're outside on a picnic with your your baby, I would not take the baby bottle out until you're ready to use it. Same thing with the water bottles. It also matters what goes into your plastic packaging. Fattier foods, for example, can absorb more chemicals from certain plastic than others. And UC says there are certain materials he and his colleagues have found to be almost consistently estrogenic. These include polystyrene, recycling symbol number six, and a class of rubbery plastics called elastomers. Which means silicones, latex, basically things that feel kind of rubbery tend to be problematic. Colorants, things that have lots of colorants in them, so brightly colored products tend to be more estrogenic. Food packaging is an area where there's no real regulation, um, and there's really no way to know what's in your food packaging. So in addition to encouraging people to take steps that they can take in their own home, we really encourage people to contact their legislators, push for stronger regulations that are really protective of the most vulnerable populations, because this is something that it's extremely difficult to shop your way out of. It is possible to make plastics completely free of estrogenic activity, says Mike Yusey. For cosmetics and personal care products, a nonprofit called the Environmental Working Group runs a database where you can look up by brand name how your own products rank in terms of potential health risks from their ingredients. UC hopes to launch a similar searchable database where people can look up how their plastic products did on tests for estrogenic activity. He's shooting for it to be online by late summer 2015. For Sound Medicine, this is Shia Levitt reporting. Shia reached out to the FDA to learn more about its testing process for plastics. The agency declined to comment on tape, but did send Shia an email saying that federal law allows private companies to do their own safety testing for substances, as long as the work is based on publicly available information and backed up by experts in the field. We'll post a link to the Environmental Working Group's Skin Deep database on our website. Just go to soundmedicine.org. Shia Levitt is a frequent contributor to Sound Medicine. She has reported for NPR, Marketplace, and numerous other outlets. And finally this week, we wanted to follow up on a book about the healthcare system written from a unique perspective. When the Healthcare Handbook came out a few years ago, its co-author was just plain old Nathan Moore, 
who worked on the book while he was in medical school. Well, now he's Dr. Nathan Moore, a resident at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, and the book is out in its second edition. But we wanted to check in with him to see how both the book and his point of view have been updated. Dr. Nathan Moore, welcome back to Sound Medicine. Thanks for having me. So when you and your co-author, Elizabeth Askin, first wrote the healthcare handbook, you were medical students. Now you're both internal medicine residents. Um, so now that you're actually working on the job, um, have you encountered any challenges that you weren't expecting? <laughs> well, it turns out that being a, a resident takes up a lot of your time, and that kind of takes away from the time that we spend writing the book. I think the other thing that we weren't quite expecting is both Elizabeth and I are interested in outcomes, ensuring patients get the best care, and considering how system factors go into that. So we had both give more thought to system factors when we're taking care of patients. But it turns out it's really hard to integrate that stuff into clinical practice, especially when you're in such a time crunch uh, like we are as residents. I think we think about it more than uh, most other residents do, but it's still really hard to put it into practice, especially with the limited amount of power you have as an actual practitioner to influence that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And as far as the first edition of the handbook, are there any chapters you wish you would have included? Uh, there were, and then that's why we put them in the second edition. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so we've got a whole new half a chapter on health IT which is a, a huge topic, and it's kind of eye-opening to see the lack of data there for how effective or not it is, despite the billions and trillions of dollars we spend on it. We've got a new section on readmissions and the readmissions penalty, and a big uh, section on team-based care. The number of uninsured Americans fell steeply in 2014. How do you think the millions of newly insured people seeking medical treatment have affected the health care system? You know, it's a huge issue. Uh, with the ACA, we kind of dropped tens of millions of people. We gave them insurance cards and said, there you go, go get health care. And it's, it's not that easy. Just getting insurance doesn't mean you have access to health care, especially if you don't expand the provider pool. So demand has gone up significantly and supply really hasn't changed all that much. So we see it here. Patients get Medicaid or other sorts of insurance, and now they're asking, you know, where do I go to get primary care? Where do I go to get the preventive care I need? We refer them to, you know, different safety net clinics or various clinics around town, and the wait can be a couple months. And beyond that, getting specialty care is not much easier once you get Medicaid in many places. And the number of uh, providers that accept Medicaid is pretty low. So just giving somebody an insurance card doesn't mean they have access to the healthcare system. I think this has been shown in several studies, especially with expansion of care in Massachusetts. Initially, when you give people who didn't have coverage, give them insurance, their number of ER visits and hospital visits goes up because they have lots of medical issues that they haven't been dealing with for a long time. Now they have coverage, especially when it's hard to get into a primary care physician. You're going to see people using the system, and that leads to increased costs, at least in the short run. Uh, that isn't exactly what people were hoping for, but it makes sense. Let's get back to the team-based approach. One of the additions, as you said, you've made in the healthcare handbook covers healthcare teams. I think a lot of us always thought that doctors, nurses, and other healthcare providers always worked as a team. What is this team-based care we're talking about, and really, how is it different? You're correct. Physicians and nurses have always been the core team in most healthcare settings, but I think there's a recognition now that there are many other professions in the healthcare field, for example, physician assistant, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, social workers, psychologists, and many others who are also highly trained and have a lot to offer for our patients. And it makes much more sense for all of us professionals to work together collaboratively to improve the care for our patients rather than piecemeal and not sharing any information. So the idea now is that we have several healthcare professionals each working in their own specialty to the top of their license to provide care for patients and that we communicate with each other as a team, which I think is also kind of a paradigm shift where before there really wasn't that much communication within the team. But the idea now is that we're all working together for the sake of the patient. You mentioned the top of license. What do you mean by that? So it's a controversial phrase that means different things to different people, but essentially, as I mentioned, other healthcare professionals have years of training, and the idea is to utilize that training so that you use professionals in the manner that's most appropriate to their training. It doesn't make sense for a nurse practitioner, for example, to be doing the work of a patient care tech, checking vitals and drawing labs. 
They go to school for many years to make healthcare decisions, diagnoses, and prescribe treatments. So the idea is that within the team, each member is working to the best of their ability to leverage everyone's training and talents. So you've chosen to become a primary care physician at a time when fewer medical students are making that very choice. So what prompted you to go into this field? I mean, primary care, you have a lot of patients. Some specialties uh, offer more pay. Uh, Some specialties offer an easier schedule. But no, you've chosen primary care. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, when, once you say it like that, you make me reconsider. <laughs> I know, I know, and I wanted to encourage you. I, before we started, I was applauding you. I take it all back. But the question still remains, why? <laughs> yeah, you know, neither Elizabeth nor I were planning to go into primary care before we started writing the book, but actually it was doing research for the first book, and we came across quite a bit of evidence that shows primary care is the most effective way to increase health outcomes for the most patients for the least amount of cost. And in the U.S., we have a big imbalance between specialty and primary care compared to other countries for many reasons, some of which you just mentioned. So for me, it was kind of seeing that evidence that primary care really is the best way to improve health of patients that convinced me to change. And traditionally, primary care in America hasn't been valued in the way that I think it probably should be. Um, But I'm hopeful that as the system starts moving more towards outcome-based payments and payments for quality, that primary care will become valued more appropriately. That said, it is tough, very fast-paced, there's limited resources, and there's a lot of paperwork, but I really enjoy the experience of seeing patients over time and having a positive impact on their lives. The main thing in my mind these days is moving from a system of treating sick people to a system that promotes keeping people healthy. And I think especially in the U.S., we've had a system focused on treating people once they get sick that I believe would benefit from moving more towards a system that promotes keeping people well and keeping them out of the hospital. Well, Dr. Nathan Moore, and also to your colleague, co-author, Dr. Elizabeth Askin, thank you both so much for doing this handbook. I mean, it is amazing, and I'm very glad you're becoming a doctor, especially a primary care physician. Thanks for having me. Dr. Nathan Moore and Dr. Elizabeth Askin are the co-authors of the Healthcare Handbook. And that's it for this week's program. Sound Medicine senior producer is Nora Hyatt. Eric Metcalf produces our interviews. Chris Lieber records and edits the program, and he chooses our music. Steve Ali of Jazzville Studios wrote our theme music. Carmel Roth is the managing editor of Sound Medicine News, with help from Andrea Moraskin. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Thanks for listening. For more information about anything you heard on this podcast, please go to our website, soundmedicine.org. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health.